was special to have Shepard uh, read. Jeremy, sorry, I forgot to tell you that. Um, <laughs> special to have him read because his younger brother, Tucker, is being baptized. Uh, one of our young men being baptized today. So we have Tucker uh, Thiel being baptized. We have Lauren Taylor. Aubriana Hawkins. She goes Aubrey, right? I say Aubriana because it sounds, you know, formal. Thank you. And uh, Quinasia Baker is being baptized today. So it's a wonderful opportunity for these wonderful young people. Their testimonies are so sweet. I can't wait to share with you pieces from that. Take your Bibles and open them up to Exodus chapter 17. For those of you that are our guests today, we're working through Exodus and the way that the pulpit works and has worked for more than 30 years at Grace Covenant Church is that term expository. It means that we open God's Word. We, of course, have studied it before we open it on a Sunday morning. But we open God's Word and we work through the text and we let the text work through us. This sermon today, if we're going to move forward as a church, as a body, as a family, we're going to move forward with God's power. We see the war with the Amaleks on display today. In 2006, there was a movie that came out called The Guardian. Kevin Costner uh, played this Coast Guard senior chief, Ben Randall. He's the legendary Guardian. He's the one of the rescue swimmers at the time. There were less than 300 that protect the seas, protect people, that is, who are lost at sea. He has a protege, played by Ashton Kutcher, uh, who goes by um, the name Jake Fisher. They're at this moment, well on into the story, and uh, Fisher asks Ben Randall, the chief, he says, um, what's your number? What he means by that is, how many people have you saved? To which Chief Randall replies, 22. Now, the legends were that he had saved hundreds of people out of the water. Um, Kutcher's character at that point says, 22, huh, that's... Uh, that's not many for a legendary guy. To which Chief Randall replies, no, that's how many I lost. That's the only number that I keep track of. So I'm watching this movie shortly after it comes out and the preacher in me, all the preacher lights are going off. That's just like a great moment there. At one point in the story, um, it's told of a daring rescue that Chief Randall performed. The medical ship, after receiving uh, the distress call that the ship was going down, he goes out and rescues it. It's on fire. They've got everybody off the boat except for this one guy. As the ship starts to go down, Ben grabs him, hangs on to him as he's being hoisted up. The winch fails, and they're 20 miles from sea, and Chief Randall has to carry this man suspended in air for 20 miles, and they slip. And the only way he can carry him is by holding his fingerprints, the fingertips, that is. The person telling the story to the young Jake Fisher says he tore every ligament in his arm and he dislocated his shoulder, but he didn't let go. He held on. It was his job. It was his passion. And this man's life depended on it. That's incredible bit of storytelling. It's a riveting experience. Um, to think about that. Today, there are 350 of these elite rescue swimmers in the U.S. Coast Guard. Do the math, 350. Only 350. There's no way they can save everybody. These are the people that go out when the U.S. Navy grounds its ships. 
but it's still not enough to save everybody. Even the best of the best of the best can't get it done in all circumstances. Israel is about to discover in their first skirmish on the ground that in order for them to be a healthy community, a healthy people, and to move forward and to bring pleasure and glory and honor to God, they're going to have to rely not on themselves, not even on the best of the best of themselves, but on the Lord himself to fight their battles for them and with them. Today we focus on this incredible dimension of God's power. I don't fully understand all of this, and I've, I've spent a lot of time in Scripture and a lot of time with the Lord on my knees. I don't fully understand why God in His sovereignty and in His glorious nature chooses to work through the prayers of broken people, but He does, and He has, and He is, and most of us are sitting here today because He has done it for us. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt, their first enemies they faced were not external. We covered that over the last couple of weeks. They were internal. Their struggle was the war within, the battle that's raged in every human heart, even here this morning, the battle to trust God or to trust in themselves. But there was no external enemy at the time. Remember the water at Mara? We just covered all that. Reminds me of the poem that we learned in Years back, it says, two hearts beat within my chest, one is cursed, one is blessed, one I love, one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. Which nature are we feeding, our spirit man, our carnal man? Well, we feed our carnal man when we think we can get it all done as a self-made man or woman. But the scripture will call us today to trust the Lord. Look at Exodus 17, verse 8, it's the first part of our passage this morning. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. I I want you to notice just a couple of notes this morning, not many, just as we sail through this passage this morning, but the enemy attacks. That's what enemies do. They attack. And there's something distinct about the Amalekites and the way that they attack. It's, It's not good. But before I get to that, do you remember Esau? Does anybody that's still in school, elementary, middle school, or high school, can anybody tell me who was Esau's brother? Jacob. Jacob. Awesome. Uh, For those of you watching online, two guesses who said that. It's the student name I quoted last week with the answer. Thank you, Caroline. You're awesome. Um, Caroline, if I ever go preach anywhere else for a meeting or something, she's going to be the amen corner right there. I love it. Jacob, it was Jacob's brother. Remember, there was great tension with them. Esau opposed his brother Jacob and threatened to kill him. Remember how the story played out? And now Esau's descendants are opposed to the children of Jacob, and they're threatening to annihilate them. From what we know, by piecing together other glimpses of them throughout God's word, here's what we find out. They, they organized themselves into a very early national nomadic fancy word that means they're moving around on the land, group that lived partly and thrived by attacking other population groups and plundering their wealth. Think about this. They weren't creating anything themselves. They weren't stewarding the land themselves. They weren't benefiting from good, hard, decent, fair work. No, their lot, their gain, the only shot they had was to take from others that had. Not that that has any parallel today. 
or plays out in any way. Wow. But this is the way that the Amalekites got ahead. Why the attack? What did Israel do to provoke this? Well, you know, a, a therapist will remind you sometimes it's not always good to try to figure out all the nuances of why and just deal with the what. Well, we've got to do that because the text doesn't tell us why. But there's a few things we can probably surmise from what we know. Why the attack? Even though there's no clear why here, it's plausible to think of this. Remember, I said they plunder, they take. It's what they did. But here comes this big tribe of the Israelites in a land that they're kind of hanging out in. And they're thinking, wait, there's not enough water for us and them, and there's not enough for all this to go around. We better attack and run them off or destroy them, and then we can have their things and what we have here together. In fact, it actually looks like that God's people are being attacked because, watch this, they're God's people. I mean, this happens. Christians are being persecuted around the world today in record numbers. It happens. Why? Because they named the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior and Master. We knew nothing of that here in the States, and that's the reason we hold the rope for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. But there are places where it is dangerous. It would be a death sentence to do what we're about to do for these four young souls today. That, that's real today. That this attack is simply because they are the people of God. How did they attack? Well, we, we found out who they are, maybe why they attacked. How do they attack? Well, we find that out actually later on in Scripture. The strategy is quite sinister, actually. In Deuteronomy 25, if you're taking a note, you may write that down. Moses recounts this, and here's what he says. Remember what Amalek did when he attacked you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you, listen, when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, and those who were lagging behind you, and he uses this phrase, and he did not fear God. Ooh. So not only was the attack unprovoked, but it targeted the weakest and the most helpless, dare I say, the vulnerable and the voiceless, the stragglers at the back of the caravan. Listen, rather than waging an honorable war for a just cause, the Amalekites made a sneak attack on defenseless women and children. Now you see why Moses would say they had no fear of God. The same can be said of those predators and abusers today who would attack the vulnerable and the voiceless. They have no fear of God. If you're looking for a fair fright, fight from the enemies of God, you will be sorely disappointed. It's not the enemy's only strategy, but it's one of his devices that he still uses today. He will attack you. Satan, our real foe, will attack you when you are weak, when you are stressed, when you're not at your best. Often when things have been going really well for a time and you've not seen the need to be as disciplined or as on guard as you were previously, the enemy will attack. 
Regardless of his tactics, we hold ourselves to God's standards, though. We don't fight dirty. We don't fight fire with fire, as they say. We fight on our knees and with our surrendered lives to our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible encourages us, in spite of the enemy's attacks, to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The enemy attacks. The fight begins. So they didn't back down, they didn't cower, they had to stand. For the first time, Israel has to stand and fight. It's worth noting here that there's no record that the Jews ever had to fight any battles while they were enslaved in Egypt. But once they were delivered from bondage, they discovered they had enemies. Since they were enemies of God, the Amalekites, these soldiers were really in, this is not a stretch, bear with me, Satan's army, as it were. And Satan was determined to prevent the people of God from ever reaching the promised land in the hopes that he could thwart God's plan revealed in Genesis, that he would crush the head of the serpent. Look at what Moses does in verses 9 and 10. So Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight. He didn't say, uh, let's, uh, let's just think through this thing. They'd already thought through it. Let's go fight. Tomorrow, I'll stand up there on the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Verse 10, so Joshua, jo- uh, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. This is a thoughtful response here. It really is. We, you're going to fight and press. It's a two-prong response. They're praying and they're pressing. Do you see it? Spurgeon would write of this, thinking about the parallels to our salvation, that the children of Israel were not under the power of Amalek. They were free men. And so we are not under the power of sin any longer. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace off of our necks, those of us who are in Christ. But now we have to fight not as slaves against a master, but as free men and free women against a foe. Moses never said to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, Spurgeon continues, go fight with Pharaoh, not at all. It was God's work to bring us out of Egypt and make us his people. But when we are delivered from bondage, although it's God's work to help us, there's a fight we have to show up for. Now that we're alive from the dead, we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. Do you see it? When we identify with Jesus Christ, his enemies become our enemies. And we must fight the good fight of faith. Paul would write in Ephesians 6, Be strong, finally, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Many of you can quote the rest of that from memory. But he talks about the weapons we take into battle. I don't want to get too wrapped up in this dynamic of spiritual warfare this morning. It is a real thing. The Bible does speak of it, but it's not the main point of all of the Bible. And it's certainly not the main focus of Jesus' ministry or the bulk even of the New Testament writing. It's mentioned in the Bible about like this. But here we are. The Amalekites probably are not chasing you down. The Egyptians are probably not your enemy today in 2021. The devil, the Bible teaches us, 1 Peter 5, is our greatest enemy. And he uses the world, the flesh, 
and world systems to oppose us. Just as Israel was delivered from Egypt by the power of God, so we too have been delivered. We are in the world, but physically, but we are not of this world spiritually. And so, we don't want to become conformed to this world. Romans 12. We renounce the things of the flesh. Galatians 5. And we resist the attacks of the devil. Let me remind you of this from last week. Our salvation sets us free. Our sanctification shows others God's glory. In fact, I don't often do this. Take a deep breath. This one's going to sting a little bit. Let it out. We need the battles of life to balance out the blessings of life. Otherwise, we become too confident and comfortable and stop trusting the Lord. Now, you may think you want to test that theory the other way, but it never worked out. The enemy attacks. The fight begins. The plan is in place. See, we're hastening through. He's going to make it on time today. The enemy attacks, the fight begins, and the plan is in place. Do you see it there in verses 9 through 12? I won't go back and reread that text right now. We'll touch a few of those verses in a moment. But that two-pronged approach I mentioned to you, we see on full display. Hands lifted up to God with feet planted on the rock, Moses up on the hill, and hands and feet in the battle. It's not, well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to pray. Or, no, we don't need to pray about that. We're just going to get into the fight. No, it's both and. It's all of the above. It's engaging on all fronts. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain along with Aaron and her, and Joseph takes the army down into the valley to fight. The enemy may be skilled and determined, but hear me, the Lord is on the side of his people. Let's mount a camera on a drone with me, if you will, and, and kind of pan over this thing and get a glimpse of what's happening here. The Lord is on the side of his people. Before Israel's counterattack, Moses had taken up his position on the hillside overlooking the battlefield where he will hold the staff of God in a posture of prayer. Moses is not up there with a sniper rifle going to help everybody out on the ground. That's not what's happening. He has no weapon other than his prayerful position. Some scholars dispute that this is prayer. It's worth me mentioning here because it doesn't actually mention that Moses is expressing verbal praying here. They argue that when Moses lifted up the rod, he was doing something else. Uh, Nahum Sarna says he was holding up a standard with a symbol on it that symbolized the presence of God in the Israelite camp. Others think that Moses, I'm going to say this one again. Others think that Moses was doing magic. Really? I mean, this stuff gets in books that I pay for, y'all. It's <sighs> Even John Currid, who is a very conservative uh, scholar and evangelical author, writes and says there's absolutely nothing in the text to support this idea that Moses' hands are raised for divine intervention. I really, really disagree with him. And I know he's forgotten more about languages than I'll ever learn. But 
I just don't see it. In fact, I see quite the opposite when you see it play out. These are two literal textual criticism. Okay, nerd stuff over. Back to what the Bible says. We don't know exactly what Moses said because it's not there, but this is an unmistakable sign of him depending on God to win the battle. Moses was holding his staff. It's that instrument of divine power and the token of God's covenant people. By holding it up to heaven, he's appealing for God to defend his people. But watch this. It's not Moses empowering the people to fight. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord of hosts is going to battle with the people of God. And so he does with us. As long as Moses was able to maintain that posture, the rod in his hands and held it up, Israel prevails. We just read this, remember? But when he brought his hands down, Amalek prevailed. Let's take a few notes here of the limitations we see on display, and we're coming to the close of our study this morning. Joshua with the army. You see, they're limited. Joshua couldn't go down and feed Amalek by himself. He took the army with him. But Joshua and the army can't even get it done, y'all. They've got to have Moses up on the hill doing his part. The, the army is limited. Your ground assault will be limited if it's only in the natural. Then we see the limitations of Moses. Moses becomes weak, and he has Aaron and Hur. He can't do it without Aaron and Hur beside of him. As his arms begin to fall down, they stand there and hold it up. We think of Moses as this champion of a man, but I would remind you, he is only a man. And when the Israelites recounted the day's events, I don't think they praised his power in prayer. I think instead they probably said something like that. Hey, did you see Moses up there? He is awesome old and today you could really see it on him I didn't know he was going to make it he kept kind of lowering his arms every time he did and we were losing I didn't know how much longer he would have been able to hold on I'm so glad he had some help I think they recognized his limitations it was on full display I want to tell you something as your pastor I am limited I can't do even this without other men of God holding up my arms and praying for me and standing on the hill and standing in the gap for me. I'm not special. If anything, I'm a special case in need of more prayer. You won't succeed in battle alone. Moses was limited. Israel finally is limited totally because they couldn't do anything without the Lord's help. Church, except the Lord builds the house. Those who labor, labor in vain. I don't want to build Grace Covenant. Pastor Darren doesn't want to build Grace Covenant. We want the Lord to build his church. Which means there's work on the ground that has to be done and there's work on the hill that has to happen. Finally, the Lord's people prevail. Look at verse 13, Exodus 17, as we finish out our reading here, I'm going to give you one parallel. It'll wrap up rather quickly. Exodus 17, 13, Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his people with the sword. The Lord and his people prevailed that day. In the next two verses, you find the Lord commands to Moses that they should write it down. Write this down in a book of remembrance so you won't forget. Why would he say that? Because one day, God was going to completely wipe out the Amalekites. Like, people wouldn't remember them unless something was written down about them. Here's the second reason I think he told Moses to write it down so they could remember it. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. 
I forget stuff. Do you forget stuff? You probably don't. Teach me, please. I need to be taught. Let me tell you when I'm at my worst of memory, uh, in my memory recall. You ready? When I am stressed and near defeat and in the battle, it's good for me to have something written down to remind me of the Lord's faithfulness. God is faithful. Whether you feel him or not, whether you sense he's near or not, he is faithful. God's people were victorious. Moses then builds this altar, celebrating the Lord's goodness and recording the declaration of war against the enemies of God. He calls the Lord there, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Wow. The Lord is my banner. The banner was that standard they would follow, you know, in battle. We've seen pictures of it in American illustrations in battle, the, the one holding the flag, Revolutionary War. If you've ever seen the Narraway production, uh, Anno Domini, it's an incredible thing, and he talks about the standard, Stephen holding the standard of the Lord, who will raise high the standard. Huh. People always want to look to something to rally. What's your banner this morning? What's the emblem of your hope? Where do you look for courage in times of difficulty? Moses has an answer for you. The Lord, he is my banner. Whenever I'm under attack, I rally to his side. Let's wrap this up and give some modern day application for us. You ready? These are fast. Here we go. Number one, attacks come predictably. You say, well, this was a sudden attack. They came from behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the first one. Here's what we've learned on this side of all that scripture. You ready? Satan often attacks God's people after they've experienced blessings. It was after his victory over the four kings that Abraham was tempted to take the spoil. It was after the victory over Jericho that Joshua became overconfident and was defeated at Ai. It was after Elijah defeated the priests of Baal that he became discouraged and was ready to quit, and it was after the blessings of his baptism and being coronated into his earthly ministry that Jesus, our Lord, was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. Therefore, Paul would remind us in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You might be riding high at the moment. Just know, be ready. The attacks come predictably. I don't say that to scare you. I say also to remind you the battles are for our good. The battles are for our good. The battles of life often help balance the blessings of life. And you're like, uh, I'm okay. Can I try it the other way? Uh, it doesn't work that way. We don't get to choose that. But if we remember Romans 8, one of the most powerful chapters in all of the Bible. John 3 is right up there. But man, Romans 8 is wow. But God is working all things together for our good, even the battles, even the losses, even the casualties. Third lesson, don't stop praying. Philip Riken gives this helpful insight. Listen to this. Things were going so well that prayer hardly seemed necessary. So Moses gradually lowered his arms. Have you found that to be the case in your own life? Maybe you were so sick for so long and you were so intimate with God in that sickness because you were crying out to God, not just to heal you, but after you kind of worked through that, 
you were crying out to God for others. That sickness kind of tethered you to a dependence on him that was actually kind of sweet. And then you got better. And the ink stopped flowing in your prayer journal. Or you didn't need as much time in prayer. Maybe it was financial. You didn't know how you're going to rub two nickels together to make enemy. You were constantly running out of month, running out of money before there was month, whatever that expression is. I've lived it so well, I don't know why that, uh, anyway. Um, you're constantly just out of money. You don't know what you're going to do. And now, it's not that you're living large, but that's not quite the battle it used to be. You're not quite praying as much as you used to pray. Do you see what I mean when I say the battles are for our good? Whatever tethers you to the Lord is for your good. Songwriter friend of mine from Morristown, Tennessee says there's three times to pray. This is so profound and awesome. You ready? Number one, when you feel like praying. That's a good time to pray. Number two, when you don't feel like praying. Number three, until you feel like praying. Last lesson this morning. It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. She's like, what? Amalek? Moses on a hill? Joshua down there? Aaron and her? Arm upraised? What do you mean it all points to Jesus? Oh, listen, the fight may have taken place on the ground, but victory was won on the hill. This was true in Rephidim, and it's true at Golgotha on a hill called Calvary, where the Lord Jesus Christ was carried up to the top of that hill, both hands stretched wide and high, pierced with spikes. There he paid our sin debt for us on a cross. It was a fight that we were destined to lose. We who were sinners in need of him who was sinless. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. It's a price we couldn't even pay. We would never survive being in the presence of God without glorified bodies. He defeated death, hell, and the grave, and he rose victorious from that dark domain, and now he lives forever with the saints to reign. Satan was indeed crushed by our resurrected king. The fight may have taken place on the ground, but victory was won on the hill. You and I still have skirmishes. We still have battles. Make no mistake, they're costly, they're exhausting. But we are not fighting for victory, church. Brother and sister, we're fighting from a position of victory. The best of the best of the Coast Guard, rescue swimmers, can't save everybody. Moses, giver of the law, still needed help to prop his arms up. There's only one who never fails. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to move forward as a church family, if you're going to move forward in your relationship with God as an individual or as a family, you've got to repent of your prayerlessness and recommit yourselves to get back on the hill and on the ground. Programs won't grow this church. Men and women can't save men and women or boys and girls. Only God will do it for his glory. Would you stand with me this morning? Of all of the battles before us today, the one that we need to identify the most quickly is this. Will we trust 
in our own strength, or will we trust the Lord? Michael W. Smith has a song out. It's a repeating kind of one of those, almost a mantra kind of chorus song. But he says it, and I've seen video of him doing it when he does it with hands upraised, and he says, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, and then he looks up and says, but I'm surrounded by you. Would you pray with me? Father, the temptation is when things are going well, we don't pray as much. Or when the battle has been so hard and so hot for so long and we've not seen the results we want to see, we stop fighting and say, I'm just, I'm done. I'm going to give up. I'm through with this. Oh, Lord, we, we have to. If we're just looking in the mirror at our own self or if we're looking to man to solve our needs, fulfill our desires, oh, no, Lord. Help us this morning to fix our eyes on you, Christ alone. That's our hope of glory. Our hope is only found in you. We want to live in the power of Christ this morning. We confess these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, and while they're singing, if you need a moment to do, have prayer and spend some time with the Lord, take this opportunity. Pray right where you're standing if you want to. I'll be down here if you want to come pray with me. I'll come back after one song, say a few words. We'll sing some more, and then we'll transition to our baptism celebration. Let's raise our voices in worship.